continuing our discussion series, uh, God of the Oppressed. We've been immersing ourselves in various different oppressed people group perspectives on Jesus, on faith, on the Bible, uh, one at a time. And uh, to do this takes a lot of intentionality. That's why we've set aside this entire summer to do this. Uh, because in America, whether we grew up religious or not, what colors most of our understandings of Jesus or of God, if there is a God, is a powerful perspective. It's European Americans, it's white men, it's people who have affluence, it's people who are dominant culture folks writing about who God is. And that's what gets passed around and filtered down into church settings mostly, or filtered down into our popular culture, if that's all you learned about God through. And this has serious limitations. For one thing, when we're talking about Jesus, as we've mentioned every week here, we can't really talk about power because Jesus was not a powerful person. He was a minority person within an empire. He was an oppressed person. So if we really want to understand Jesus and we really want to understand the God that he reveals, we've got to come at it from a non-powerful perspective. And then we've talked about how just functionally, it's not really helpful to just take what we believe and take the image of God from powerful people. Because when any of us are experiencing the hardest things of life, when we are in challenge, when we're in suffering, when we're in trouble or in tension or in stress, we don't turn to the people who like have the highest status to, to help us, right? Like we're, we're not looking to them and saying, oh, person who's so important in the world, what have you done when you've been in struggle? But the, we turn to the people who've struggled. We turn to the people who, have, who are on the same level of us, as us who we, or who have, who have gone through harder things than us. And we say, teach us your ways. That's who we turn to. And so what we are looking to is the people who have experienced suffering, who have experienced loss, who have experienced oppression in our world. Those are the people who can teach us about the God Jesus reveals. So today, the marginalized perspective we're leaning into is the women's perspective. I'm especially looking forward to this one. We're going to be talking about feminist theology, how we need feminine and maternal references, uh, reference points to understand and describe the God Jesus reveals. Not as like nice extracurricular images that might help us out if we want to, if we feel so inclined to entertain them, but as necessary, we need maternal images to understand the God Jesus reveals. We need feminine images to understand the God Jesus reveals. They are necessary. And so in doing this, we are thrilled to be joined by uh, Brown Line's Haley Larson. Hi, Haley. Good morning. It's good to be here. We're so glad you're here, Haley. Uh, in our times meeting in person at the Davis Theater, Haley is one of our worship leaders who regularly leads our community in music and in prayer. And in this season of virtual church, Haley has remained a leader of our worship as the person who organize and often crafts our, our uh, opening prayers. Uh, she's one of the most theologically and pastorally intuitive people that uh, I think is in our community. She is someone who from an experiential place knows and shows the God uh, who is on the side of the oppressed, not the God who's on the side of the powerful. She is somebody who knows and shows to others the God who works in the world by holding and transforming suffering, not by running from those things or trying to explain them away because they're too hard. She is someone who in her professional uh, life has logged more hours than most in the study of theology, trying to understand more fully the God that, uh, that she has experience of at North Park Theological Seminary. So we're very lucky to have Haley a part of Brownline Church. And Haley, as we, as we dive in today, I'll sort of open us with a question. Can you give us a little bit more texture for our discussion of oppression and marginalization, marginalization as it pertains to women and as it pertains specifically to your experience? 
Yeah, definitely. That was quite the intro. <laughs> I don't know where to go. Um, I mean it, every word of it. <laughs> so I first encountered liberation theology as a Bible and theology major in college. After growing up in what we probably call um, more of a traditional, more conservative church setting. So think like wooden pews and organ music and choir up front. Um, but liberation theology was this breath of fresh air in my intro to theology class. And more than that, it really came at a time where it saved my faith and my interest in studying the Bible and pursuing Jesus. Um, encountering feminist theology, it gave me a lot of answers I was looking for, but more importantly, it gave me better and bigger questions to be asking. Um, and at the same time as a white woman, I've had the privilege of learning about a lot of this in an academic setting. I've definitely had lived out experiences both in the church and outside of the church of being talked over and talked down to and objectified, but I haven't faced the same level of intersectional oppression um, that a lot of women of color have faced. So I think it's really important just to acknowledge that and to say that this is my individual experience um, and to acknowledge the privilege that I've had with my whiteness alongside of some of the struggles of being female. Yeah, we appreciate that. That is it's helpful texture. And certainly that has come up in a lot of these conversations over the summer where we are all a, a mix of identities. And some of those are the identities that would fall into categories of marginalized. And then other identities that we might carry are going to fall into the category of in power. And I remember Kyle, like, uh, I don't, I think like a month ago, we brought up this idea of like, trying to peel back those layers. And anytime we're praying is sort of understand like, which, which part of myself am I praying from? And that can help us to kind of understand like, oh, what might God say to me there? So we appreciate you just kind of unpacking the, the layers for you. That's helpful as we go forward. Well, we have uh, prepared some points here that Haley is going to walk us through. And so let me get these up on our screen and then Haley uh, will have you walk us through one at a time. Okay, so up first, we have that when you pay attention to the words used in worship, you see our language surrounding God is both powerful and limited. Haley, tell us more. Yeah, so when um, I first started reading feminist theology, it really collided with this personal faith need to know God more and to know myself more. Um, so one of the first books that I read was a book called She Who Is by Elizabeth Johnson. And I was launched into this period of a really intense wrestling with my understanding of God. I um, was realizing how masculine dominant our language is when we are describing God. And it kind of quickly turned into this hyper awareness. I would go into any type of worship setting or read anything. And um, if the person speaking was only referring to God as he, or if the people of God, if the kingdom of God was only being referred to as um, sons or men or things like that, it just immediately triggered me and I wanted to leave. I wanted nothing to do with it. Um, and I think that there's definitely, there's clearly a place for paying attention. There's clearly a place for anger and discovery. But for me personally, bitterness has never been productive. And I was in this deep season of bitterness. Um, but the turning point came when I started reading the work of feminist theologians who aren't white, 
because they pointed out very quickly that white women can afford to nitpick the specifics of language and pronouns and things like that because they're not fighting for their literal survival. It becomes kind of this hierarchy of need. Um, if I was getting to the point where I was so frustrated that I didn't know what to call God, so I didn't even want anything to do with God, that probably wasn't the point. Um, so we see this kind of tension of language is powerful. We can shape who in our community feels seen and included by the words that we're using. And at the same time, it's limited. It only goes so far. Um, out of that discovery, names of God really became one of my favorite things to talk about. Because in feminist liberation theology, the goal isn't to say that God is female. It's not to keep tally marks of how many times you refer to God as he or she or mother versus father. It's this idea that God is outside of gender and that there are so many rich names of God. There's so much language out there that we can use to really speak of God. Um, for example, when we talk about this concept of the Trinity with God, with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there's a theologian named Rosemary Radford Ruther, and she reimagines that as creator, redeemer, sustainer. Um, so just like this rich imagery that doesn't need to be attached to any type of gender identity there. So the power really comes when we pay attention and when we use the words that we have really intentionally to be speaking of this God who is way bigger than our limits in language. I, I deeply appreciate the kind of picture that you paint of the journey of kind of disillusionment of recognizing that you had been given kind of a, an incomplete picture of who God is that kind of profoundly left you out in this kind of male dominant image. And then the kind of journey through to recognizing um, that just because that tradition had left you out, the risk that we all encounter when we're trying to reimagine life for ourselves, reimagine um, an experience of faith, particularly those of us that I think would find a home in this church, which is trying to understand what does it look like to follow Jesus from a context where uh, faith and religion has not usually found life before. This deep kind of threat of bitterness, this deep kind of threat of cynicism. And so often this battle of how do I not let the, the things of the culture of religion that in this case hyper focuses the masculine and not let that disillusion me from really holding on to who God is and seeing the deep affection God has for me. And I just, I deeply appreciate it. I think that's the, the humility behind everything that we hope to talk about is the sense of we absolutely need to push forward, but make sure that we're aware that in the pushback that there's always this threat of cynicism and bitterness and that holding on to the softness and love and care of God to find yes, that it matters to do that, but then also finding how we hold on to ourselves in that process and not get lost in anger, especially when there's so much to be angry about. Um, I think you, your, your story kind of highlights, I think, a path that many of us have to walk through as we kind of reimagine and rediscover an experience of faith in our own life. You know, it's interesting, uh, when you were talking about that, that same point, Kyle, that you picked up on, uh, Haley, when you were talking about that, I thought back to our conversation with Lester about black liberation theology and the, the, the sense of like, uh, there is, there was a real maturity behind a liberation theology because 
it uh, it dives into this idea of like the liberation of one people is tied to the liberation of all people. And so Lester was speaking about that uh, from the, the, the Black Americans um, experience. And what's interesting is that Lester also brought in like tone policing and, uh, and like, oh, you know, you're, you're so angry or you're so hurt. We can't really listen to you right now until you, you know, speak more calmly or, uh, and, and what, what, what strikes me is that when that's said, when that tone policing is brought out, it's, it's delivered in sort of like the, uh, the guise of being mature, like, oh, we're, we're more mature, we're, we're calm, we're settled here as we're saying this. But what, what, uh, what, what you just sort of like humbly self-identified that is like, oh no, I, I was in this place where I was nitpicking, where I was, where I was sort of like, you know, being, you know, trying to, trying to like get really to the point and, uh, and, and try to like, oh, to, you know, po police others. And that's actually the immature uh, place, uh, but it is the more mature place that sees like, hey, the liberation of us all is tied together. And if I, I, to enter into that, I can't get trapped in bitterness. I can't get trapped in policing other people's experience to be just like mine or policing other people's responses to be just like mine. I, I am here to create more space for others by my reactions. And uh, it just strikes me the maturity behind a liberation theology, both from the feminist perspective today, and then also what we heard from Lester a few weeks back. Definitely. And I think that I needed that period of bitterness and it mm. allowed me to stay in the wrestling. Um, and at the same time, needing that to be reframed as hopeful of, okay, what is missing that we can add to the conversation of God, not what do I need to um, completely obsess over into what's already existing, if that makes sense. Like this, it really brings forth this kind of spirit of creativity and hope and inclusion that I think is really important. That's, that's really good. And I, and I like the way that you described that. There, there's a sequence to this and actually going through a, a, a space that is that's not going to serve you forever. It's actually still very important to go through that to get to a more mature standpoint. And so that, I think that's really helpful to hear, especially for all of us, as we just notice like, hey, we're going to go through waves and we're going to go through different uh, sequences as we get to a more mature place. You know, just uh, I've been having multiple conversations recently about this, I think this uh, kind of sociological experience that people who experience marginalization go through. And there's a sense of like, at some point in life coming into the realization of the oppression and injustice that has afflicted those like themselves. And there's like a deep anger in a part of that process. And it's like a necessary kind of almost like grief of like, how on earth has this been true? Um, but that it's also a process of walking through that towards kind of a deeper action. There's like a sense of healing that's necessary, but you don't just walk into kind of mature, uh, kind of lived out advocacy for a more just world. Like there is something that needs to kind of break in you first of like recognizing, oh wait, this is wrong. I feel angry about this. And it's actually a necessary part of our experience to feel upset about what is not, is not true. And then find Jesus in that place to kind of offer us the healing and space to move forward that we need, but we can't just jump into like a place of, oh, of we need to go through that experience of anger and injustice because we need to recognize even internally the brokenness that we've walked through. All right, well, let's go to, on to our next point, Haley. When you are exposed to a variety of images of God, you see 
Everyone is made in the image of God. Here's a, uh, a soapbox one for us at, at this church. And tell us more. Tell us why you have unique eyes to see this. Yes, I think um, as my journey with language was unfolding, I started thinking about like, okay, where is this terminology? Like the, the words I have to use to describe God, where is that rooted in? What is that coming from? Um, so I started thinking back into the images that I was given of God in my childhood. And one that I hadn't really thought about until more recently was a painting from my great grandpa that is in the stairwell at our church, um, the church that I grew up in. And um, yeah, just this picture of like the swirling kind of cosmos behind him. And he's kind of angry, but definitely powerful and um, very, very like strong and masculine looking. And it was that image alongside some other things that came to mind. Um, the white Jesus in the children's book that I read a lot that was teaching you how to pray. There was a painting of white Jesus in my mom's bedroom growing up and in my grandparents' house. Um, the peaceful white baby Jesus who was sleeping in the manger for Christmas. So you're sensing a theme here of how God was portrayed. Um, so he had this either God enthroned in the sky who is judgmental or that gets kind of like subconsciously sunk in sometime and controlling, or we have this beautiful, gentle, holy baby Jesus. And those were kind of the like limitations of the imagery that I was given. Um, so as we've kind of talked about, feminist theology asks, if God is overwhelmingly presented as male, how do women see themselves as made in the image of God? And then um, out of feminist theology and out of their own rich traditions, we see more specific um, just bodies of thought and theology that come out of the lived experiences of women of color. So the womanist theology out of black women experiences, Mujerista theology out of women in Latin America, Asian feminist theologians. So they begin asking, okay, if God is presented as male and white, who's really being left out of the conversation? And how does this set up kind of a hierarchy of who we're seeing as more or less being made in the image of God? So these are just a few different images. Um, the first one on the top left is an icon that was painted by Kelly Lattimore, and it's describing the Trinity. I um, just thought it was a really unique presentation that we don't really see a whole lot of having three women from three different cultures representing God. Um, the bottom left one is a picture of Jesus that is hanging at a Catholic church in Chicago called St. Benedict the African. And then the top right is actually a picture that was painted by my brother-in-law Rob um, that's at Reba Place Church in Evanston. And we see really powerful, really essential pieces of who God is from these different images that if we're only looking at the bottom right, um, we miss out on. And it's not just who is included in being made in the image of God, but it's our understanding of God ourselves, that the more and more powerful and distant we make God, the less we can actually relate to and trust in and have faith in and feel held close by God. Um, and I think that this kind of goes back to our conversation with Lester too about, um, in the top right, 
the kind of more simplistic picture of Jesus still has the wounds that are pouring out. And I think that there's things that we miss when we try to clean up who God is too. Like we miss the violence of the cross when we don't have those wounds. Um, we miss kind of this like messiness and power of birth when we talk about creation, when we're not including women in our imagery. My, um, my boss at North Park, Brett Woodman, loves to talk about there's so many Church of the Good Shepherds out there, but there's not a whole lot of Church of the Mother Hen. And so what is that language? Like, what are those imagery or those images? Um, how are they shaping our understanding of who God is? And so it's interesting, and I would invite you to kind of look back into your own upbringing, whether that was in a church context or not, to think about, like, how was I um, aware of God? Like, what are these images that I hold? Where, did that kind of, where does that kind of start for me? Because I think it is really interesting to see how that evolves over time. Yeah, I think it's unbelievable to me, like especially the image of the three women in the upper left of this. There's still almost like a some like a cognitive dissonance in my brain because of all of the images that we're so used to seeing, and then the the kind of theological reality that if we are all made in the image of God, it's almost like you could put any human image in those places and it would be a fair representation of who God is because we are all in the image of God. But yet you think about what happens when the church has lived in the hands of the powerful for so long that it's not a shock that when we are depicting who God is that we are wanting to throw up images of, of ourselves. Who are the ones that are commissioning paintings? Who are the ones that are uh, paying for those paintings to be put forward? Who are the ones that are allowing those places in our, our churches and, and in our public life to, to hold in front of us? You know, I can't help but think about even some of the conversations about like Confederate statues in our country. It's like this idea of the images we hold on to and what it says about us. It doesn't actually say as much about who God is. It says, the images we depict of God speak about our images, as much, not as much about who God's images are. I think that it's incredibly powerful in the ways that it shapes the way that we think about God and it shapes the way that we think about each other. And I think that uh, it's deeply kind of powerful to look at these various images of God and even images of Jesus, who we know was kind of a Palestinian Jew, and we kind of know what the general characteristics of a Palestinian Jew is, but it's the Jesus in the context of the Trinity, the, the Jesus uh, who, who exists in now in a non-physical state. That's why I think it's so important that we have non-white, non-male images of who Jesus is, because it allows us to connect with, this is the incarnation of God. Yes, there was a, a literal physical incarnation in the picture of a Palestinian Jew, which is still not represented in most of our images, but even beyond that, the one that exists today is one that reflects the image in all of us. And I just incredibly powerful point. Haley, you've been uh, very you've humbly really acknowledged like the, the pieces in you that those pieces in your identity um, that, you know, are, you want to be careful to uh, identify too much as marginalized. Uh, but you did mention, you know, like this, in a lot of ways, this saved your faith. And there was a real, like, you were being left out, you were being pushed aside, you were not being listened to, you were not being, you didn't see yourself as represented in the articulations of faith around you. Can you say a little bit more about just like, like, personally, like that, that part of like, that, that, that space in you that is that or that piece of your identity that is not, not recognized, being suddenly called out when you 
when you came into contact with sort of different ways to imagine God? I don't know, like just emotionally or personally that journey for you. Can you say a bit more about like how that happened? Yeah. Um, I think that just so much of it was left unexamined of my like upbringing and the images and language and just experience in the church that I didn't really even realize how male centered and how white all of my faith um, had been conditioned to be. And so I think it was this really painful process of trying to hold in tension the beauty of the upbringing that I had and the warmth of the community that I had and also the missing pieces um, and the pieces that just were really painful. My church on paper had said that they affirmed women in leadership, but we really didn't have a whole lot of women leading. It was typically related to music or to children. Um, and so even wanting to go into ministry and wanting to pursue seminary and things like that, like it didn't, I didn't really see that modeled a whole lot. So there was definitely this deep searching that needed to take place um, to even just feel affirmed in who I was as a full person and to know that um, I was fully made in the image of God. And I think when you go through your own experience with that, you start looking to see, okay, who else is feeling this way too? And how can I um, expand my actions and my language and the things that I'm doing so that those people are feeling more and more invited into the presence of Jesus instead of turned away from the church? Yeah, I'm, you mentioned when we were preparing how you'd been in contexts where, like uh, you're saying, like, you know, women were in name stated as important or stated as leaders. But in practice, there was a little bit of dissonance with that. I remember you said uh, for, for a while, because you had done study in feminist theology, you were sort of like the, uh, a, a go-to person in the circles that you were in to like speak on feminist theology on like this, you know, like, hey, here's this elective course that you can take with Haley, but never, never centralized, never like put in sort of like, hey, this is, this is the topic for Sunday. And... It was even funny as we were going through this series on um, God of the Oppressed and liberation theology has just meant so much to me and I really enjoy talking about it. I could talk and talk about some of this stuff. Um, and at the same time, there's been this kind of place of just frustration that that's sometimes the, one of the few things that I do get to talk about with people. Um, so it becomes kind of that tokenism um, experience of, okay, so you are a woman and you're studying theology, so you should speak about feminist theology, whereas there's a lot out there um, that interests me and that I find beauty in and things like that. Um, so it's holding this tension of, wow, I love speaking about this, and sometimes there's a little bit of pain in my own journey with figuring out how to find my own voice and things and be okay with taking up space and things like that. Um, just because of the journey that I've had. I mean, I think it's incredibly important to hold this balance of we need to listen to perspectives and voices that are not the powerful, but we need to also listen to, we need to listen to those voices, not just about what does it mean to be a woman? What does it mean to be a black man? But listen to just centralizing their perspective on 
communion, centralizing their perspective on prayer, centralizing a non, because it do, it's not just that like, you know, what we're seeing here, parts of the things we're, we're seeing here is not just the kind of uh, really dialed in, what are the things that have to do with gender that help us, but we miss a lot, like a lot about who God is when we're not wrestling with marginalized perspectives on our entirety of an experience of faith. Like what does it mean to wrestle with uh, living out faith at work and not just listening to powerful white men talk about what does it look like to live out faith at work? You know, and I think that this is a, a thing that I think we feel a responsibility at this church to make sure that this series is the step towards centralizing voices that are carried through and not just an extracurricular that we did for eight or nine weeks. And I think that's the real, the challenge. There's a real give and take of the value of a conversation like this, because we need to be able to hear it, but to make sure that it's not the voices stop there, because that's where the qualifications or the, the value stop. It actually needs to be fully centered and integrated into our experience, or we will continue to miss what an experience of an oppressed Jesus looks like in every corner of our life, not just the ones that are like directly touching on the social identities of the various people we discuss and talk with. Awesome stuff. Very good. Well, we have one more point to share here. So Haley, tell us more about when you, how, when you're left out of the conversation by those in power, you see Jesus is a source of empowerment and empathy. Yeah. I feel like this kind of keeps the ball rolling. I thought we were just talking about that. Um, Worshipping and understanding how God is the oppressed is really threatening and uncomfortable for those in power. Um, and so I think that when we have this kind of beauty of understanding and really understanding that God is not aligned with the powerful, especially in our context today, um, that we can recognize like, wow, those in power are actually kind of weaponizing scripture and traditional ideals. And it's really dangerous and really limiting to people who don't fit their description of who is in and who is out. I've appreciated that feminist liberation theology doesn't say just toss out the whole Bible and toss out faith tradition and all of that. But it's this invitation to um, look back and say, how can we reread what scripture is telling us or what our experience of church is, knowing that Jesus is empowering and Jesus is liberating. And if we hold kind of that love and empowerment inclusion at the center, how does that allow us to re-encounter um, whether it's Bible passages that have been hurtful or things that the church has done throughout history that has been hurtful? Um, how can we find liberation and redemption? And so it's always um, the spirit of invitation inwards and into deeper understanding instead of a tossing out or rejecting. And I found that like really, really important for my own experience. Um, one of the pieces of scripture that I've found a really helpful rereading of is the creation story in Genesis 2 when male and female are created. And this gets used a lot to say that um, women shouldn't be in leadership or women are equal to men and like men's compliments and things like that. Like we get a lot of really dangerous and really limiting theology out of this idea, um, of women as second 
But when you look at the language that's used in the creation story, um, God is saying that after male is created, he's going to create a suitable helper. A lot of times it's translated to in the English, but the terminology that's actually being used in the Hebrew is uh, two words, ezer konegdo. Um, and this is where my like nerdiness will come out a little bit, but ezer is actually used throughout scripture um, as this kind of the source of help or rescue or strength. So it's used in relation to God that like when you're calling on help um, or you've described as a trait of God as the strength and power of God. So that's the first term, Ezer. And then Konegdo is this idea of being on equal ground and parallel to or corresponding to. So talking about um, men and women in this particular creation story, that woman is be being created as a, as a source of help and rescue that's on equal ground and equal footing with men. And we're often not given that interpretation or perspective. And when we just go straight to the English of suitable helper, it definitely makes it seem like this cute little helper figure. Um, that Yeah, exactly. There's a definite hierarchy. And so what does that do to put things on equal ground instead out of a place of strength and rescue instead of um, this kind of disproportionate of power. So I think that looking at that in particular has just been like one little example of kind of a redemptive reading. There's a lot of different ones and it's really easy to, to just look at the life of Jesus and how Jesus empowers women and those of the margins throughout the New Testament and throughout the stories that we have in the gospel. Um, so it's really centering how Jesus is empowering, but really how scripture as a whole can be a source of empowerment and empathy. You know, we can have a very like micro conversation about how do we do churches in a way that are more empowering uh, to uh, women. But I, I, I almost want to take this like even a step further and not just have the micro conversation of like within church settings. Like this is something that is clearly very true throughout culture. And the power in, in what you're suggesting is like, what if, you know, so we, 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 have to, we have to do a lot of unlearning to get here, but what if the scriptures of the Bible, what if Jesus and the God that is revealed in Jesus is actually from the beginning point trying to further culture in the direction uh, of, of this like equal footing, you know, like that's our theology, this um, not just like the suitable helper, you know, but the, the person who's rescue who, I mean, in some ways there's actually like that, that puts women in like an elevated position because you need, you need help, you know, and, and it, men don't like to look needy. Right. Um, and so I, I kind of love that. Like, what if, I don't know, it, 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 we have to do a lot of unlearning because certainly the church in, in a unique way has perpetrated this as much as any uh, institution or uh, element of Western culture has, has made women secondary in, in Western world. But what if the church was truly on the, on the, like the, the, the cutting edge of changing this reality? I just think like that's what we get to imagine here. And that, that's, that's the God that we get to imagine we are following and imagine we are praying to is like, this God is not, you know, like a God we have to cajole to get with the, with the program and, you know, you know, Hey, Jesus, why don't you be 21st century? It's like, Jesus is, is miles beyond us. And we, and maybe if we followed him, we'd be in, in a, in a, in a better suit. Yeah. And I think that this, this hierarchy really comes out of 
the sinfulness and brokenness of the world and not from original like, intent and creation and beauty of God. And so a lot of times when you have religious elite that are also political and societal elite um, clinging to what's actually a result of the brokenness of the world, but claiming it as God's intention that there's hierarchy, like that creates so much damage. Um, and so there definitely is, there's this ability to really live into the beauty of the kingdom of God, of what does this look like? Um, to not be trying to arrange things in the hierarchies or binaries or anything like that, but to have a full inclusive theology that is affirming the fullness and humanity of everyone. And I think that even as we as a church try to put ourselves in positions where we are actively listening to a living God interacting with us today, and not, not just trying to think about a God, but trying to develop an interactive relationship, I think having an understanding of who that God is that surpasses the male dominant kind of positions and perspectives that we already have actually enables us to feel him. I think the truth is those moments where I am feeling in need and I actually feel a tangible presence of God like with me and comforting me. I think the closest facsimile that helps me sense that and recognize that is times with my own mother growing up the times of like being in the hospital when I had meningitis and her sitting there by my side and holding my hand. And I think the truth is, I think not only as we try to understand God, but as we try to interact with God and we're trying to sense the presence of God in our world here today, I think making sure that we are understanding that God exists in all people and in all images and exists in those deep places, I actually think we prepare ourselves to be able to see and experience God's presence better right now. Because the most of the things that I think I feel, hear God's voice saying, experience God connecting with me, are not represented in what if I've experienced in this world from powerful white men. It's just almost the exact opposite. And so if I don't broaden my understanding, I think I'm more likely to miss out where God is actually trying to speak and connect and meet me here today. Wonderfully said. Wonderfully said, Kyle. Um, Haley, we want to hear a bit more, just like some takeaways. But if I can bring in Abby first and to maybe to tee you up for any final thoughts, is there anything from the chat, Abby, uh, that is worth kind of bringing in as a theme or as a question for Haley? Um, yeah, so I think this idea of images being so pervasive to our like general understanding of God is really resonating with people. Um, and I think it's, Lara like says it very well, she's um, talking about how wild it is that we even want to try to impose um, gender or race onto God. She says, I mean, we're talking about the supreme force that created the universe. Um, so trying to bind um, like larger energy into some of our uh, you know, human categories is just sort of this um, almost this mind-blowing idea in itself. Um, and then there's just, and also people kind of wanting to hear a little bit more about this um, perspective of women as rescuer and um, helper on an equal footing, just, you know, finding that as a really intriguing um, way to think about the creation story. Yeah. Um. I think that 
realizing that all language is metaphorical when we're speaking of God. I initially, when I was kind of encountering that, I was like, wow, that's really frustrating. But I got to a point where I was like, no, that's actually really freeing. Like, I don't have the responsibility of naming and understanding every aspect of this infinite God who is both all powerful and intimately related to each and every one of us. Like that, it was so freeing to know that my language is never going to be complete. And it was an invitation to be creative and to find new ways to be speaking of God and constantly having new images. Um, and it was that pursuit of newness that really said like, how is, can we be reinterpreting some of these um, kind of just like mainstream coming from white voices in power interpretations of the Bible all throughout history. And I think that's why things like this Ezra Connecto creation of being on equal footing uh, is so rare because it's not what's been preached throughout all of church history or most of church history. Um, so I know this isn't answering the question exactly, but there's one other image that I really have just found some like, wow, that's really cool um, power in. And that has been looking at the ways that um, the Bible speaks of the womb of God and how often that gets translated to the heart of God um, or like the inner workings of God or things like coming from the gut, like this deep gut-wrenching feeling. And it's actually talking about the womb of God and longing for creation. Um, it was definitely an interesting experience in college, like coming across that and giving a like little presentation on the womb of God and feeling super uncomfortable around my peers because we're not used to talking about um, wombs and mess and all of that. But it's just, and maybe it's just in the season of being pregnant too, but there's so much rich imagery of, when creation is being brought into the world, there's not a direct control over creation anymore. And yet there's this really, really deep love. And the closest thing that we have to understanding that is understanding a mother's womb and this act of bringing a child into the world and not being able to have direct control, but still wanting to love and nurture and care for that child. Um, so there's just these really, really rich images that completely can widen our perspective of who God is and how God acts and that widens our perspective of the kingdom and our relationship with God and there's just a lot there <laughs> I get really excited about some of these different like terms and ways to rethink about some of the language that we've just been given and instead of just taking it um, actually looking into things and saying okay what other interpretations are there out there wow you, you definitely got my wheels turning as you talked about the womb of God and things uh, coming from the womb of God. And, and then the way you describe that in terms of control and love and, oh man, I'm thinking back to even conversations we had at the outset of, uh, of COVID-19 uh, era um, about, um, about God's will and things like that. And we, and, and we, we engaged a lot of those ideas that you're just uh, expanding on there. So yeah, how we need, how we need these images. That's great. Um, Haley, uh, we and we have to stop just for time's sake because we can't do this forever and people have plans for their Sunday. Um, but uh, I would love it if you would pray for us. Um, and then also, if I can just say before, um, but maybe before we're done, if, if you're able to find an example of what you were just talking about, like a, 
a psalm or some scripture that's well known that uses God's heart when actually the better translation to English is God's womb. That'd be awesome. You could just throw that in the chat uh, before we're done. Just so if anybody's curious to see that a little bit more, that just kind of helps us. Cause you know, like a lot of the scriptures or the Psalms that we might, that might like help us pray because we like go back to those words are really ingrained in us, certain English translations. And it would be really cool to kind of break one of those and make it not about God's heart, but God's womb. So, uh, but first, would you pray for us? Would you just let us kind of set in this space a little bit uh, in a spiritual way and, uh, and let, it, let it affect us? Definitely. Mother God, I thank you for your invitational and uncontrolling love. I thank you um, that when we are in pursuit of you, we're able to rest in just the fullness and vastness of who you are, that we will never have all of you figured out. And that's a good thing because it's an invitation to love bigger and to um, act in ways that are bringing about your justice and your mercy in your kingdom. Would you provide us with peace? Would you provide us with rest? Um, would you provide us just with the overflowing love um, that you are the source of so that we would better be a community that is reflecting all of who you are in each of our own uniqueness. We love you and we praise you. In your name we pray, amen.